conversations with prominent pastors, teachers, and leaders. This is the Pastor Well Podcast from Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Now your host, Dr. Herschel York. Hello and welcome to the Pastor Well Podcast. I'm Herschel York, Dean of the School of Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm also pastor of the Buck Run Baptist Church in Frankfurt. The Pastor Well Podcast is dedicated to helping servants of the Lord Jesus Christ be more faithful in ministry. We do that by engaging in conversation with uh, interesting uh, Christians who spur us on to faithfulness and good works. I, and today we are blessed to have one of the most fascinating people in my life. I am delighted to call Dr. Abraham uh, Cruvilla my friend, as well as someone whom I read, I love to listen to. He is uh, the Senior Research Professor of Preaching and Pastoral Ministries at the Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, welcome to Pastor Well. Thank you very much, Herschel, for having me. Well, it's, it's a joy. You are a dear friend and someone that uh, I have learned much from. Just to tell a little bit about yourself now, one, again, one of the most fascinating things about you is that you have so many different talents and gifts. So tell us about, uh, first of all, you're, you are Indian ethnically, but you were born? In Kuwait. Kuwait. Mm -hmm. And first 10 years of life there? Is first right? 10 years, roughly first 10 years there, second 10 years in India, and the remaining 35, 36 years now. How, how did you come to faith in Christ? My older brother led me to the Lord in India. In India. Yeah, so we have a great relationship. Uh, and then you went to uh, medical school? Then medical school in India, came to the U.S. to do a Ph.D. in immunology at uh, Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. All right, and uh, you're, what branch of uh, medicine are you in? And then did a residency in uh, dermatology, so I like to look at people's skin, hair, and nails. All right, I'll hide mine then. Uh, <laughs> You'll have to take all your clothes off first, Herschel. Trust me, no one wants that. Uh, even a dermatologist doesn't want that. Uh, so you have a, a PhD in immunology, then an MD, and then you feel called to ministry somewhere in and there? And then I felt my education was totally inadequate, so I went back to school and uh, to Dallas Theological Seminary. Did a THM at Dallas? THM at Dallas. Uh, and uh, and also, and then you did a PhD. And I had continued to have nothing else to do, so I did a PhD in Aberdeen, Scotland. Now, this is just stunning. I mean, who does this? Who I know, I this? was stunned too. But <laughs> yeah. Uh, and your PhD is technically in New Testament, but you focused on hermeneutics. Hermeneutics and preaching, in, right? Moving from text to application today. And really that's what you have focused on is how to how to get from the text to the sermon, the application. That's been a sort of crusade of yeah. my life, yes. Uh, you've written several books about this. Uh, the first book of yours I read was called Privilege the Text. Just an amazing uh, book on how to approach the text in order to preach the text. And uh, it was when I read it, I said, oh, here's a kindred spirit. Uh, and uh, tell us about your basic approach to how do we get meaning out of the text? Privilege the Text is a version of my PhD dissertation. And I chose the title carefully. We must privilege the text and not anything behind it. My favorite metaphor for this purpose is the text is not a plain glass window through which you look to see 
what's behind it or what really happened or whatever you want to call it. Right. It's actually a stained glass window at which you look. So it's not a plain glass window through which you look, but a stained glass window at which you look. Right. We're not trying to discover anything behind the text. Uh, uh, it, we're, we're trying to find out what is it that the Holy Spirit said in that text. I will grant that there are things we can discover behind the text, but for preaching purposes, life change purposes, the interpreter's goal is to catch what the text says, privilege the text, because what happened is not necessarily inspired. Right. It's the Holy Spirit's account of the events that is inspired and profitable for doctrine. That's right. So Job's three friends show up and speak. The event of them showing up and talking to Job is not not inspired. But the Holy Spirit chooses to record their words, and the record of what they said is the inspired thing. Exactly. Right. Uh, So tell me, uh, with this burden of yours, that preachers really appreciate the text you emphasize what the text is doing, what the author is doing with what he writes. Not merely that we just pull some little story, like one slice, and okay, and so let's just look at this story. Here's a nice story about Jesus. You want us to see specifically how the author chooses vocabulary, uh, his syntax, everything in order to, to show us uh, meaning that goes beyond just the level of the event. That is correct. I think authors. Now, let me expand this further. This is a fundamental precept of language, of all language, language, spoken, scripted, sacred, secular. We do things with what we say or write for that matter. And there are many examples of that. If I may pick on you and your wife, Tanya, if Tanya tells you, Herschel, the trash is full that's an indicative statement. Think, but it is an absolute imperative. That's it, it, If I have any sense at all, I, I, re- I read the imperative. Or else you go intent. into a doghouse. That's now, right. Now, you, you might be a little sharper than most of us and say, <laughs> well, the trash is full, so I'm going to go over to Walmart and get Tanya a larger trash can. Guess what? You're still going to be in the doghouse yeah, right. because you didn't catch what the author, speaker in this case, was doing with what she was saying. And until you catch that... There is no valid application. And this is extremely critical for Scripture, particularly for preachers who are in the business of making application for themselves and for their listeners. Well, I get excited just talking to you about this because, man, this is is what I love to do. It's what I do every week. I'm preaching through Luke right now, two-year series in Luke. Luke is masterful in the way he does that. And just like little slight nuances that are like the mic drop moment. Uh, I, I think about Jesus in Luke 14, uh, the, the parable of the great banquet. Mm-hmm. And Jesus tells the story, you know, the master, uh, you know, the, the invitees refuse the second invitation. They don't come. They send excuses. So the master says to the servant, well, go into the city and bring the halt, the lame, uh, the blind. And then the servant says, well, there's still room left. He says, now go out into the highway. So he's using basically a you singular. You go out into the highway and the hedges, compel them to come in, that my house may be full. Then it's you, plural. Mm. I tell you. Fascinating. I tell you, those that rejected invitation won't be at my banquet. Mm. And it's that one little shift to a you, plural, means Jesus is now made the story about him. His banquet. It's his banquet. 
And it gives it opens up that whole text. He's been telling people about, you know, when you when you're invited, don't sit there. He's been talking about the banquet, and now he says it's it's my banquet. Ah, uh, uh, if you miss that, you miss the whole thing. You miss the whole thing. For for your listeners who don't know this, Herschel and I are. Uh, Herschel is an honorary Kuru Villa, and I am an honorary York. We are we are brothers in this I'll crusade. That. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. Just the the beauty of the text. Uh, you, incredible. The power of the text yeah. comes out in, in in and for those who don't realize it, how you say something, and I'm not just necessarily talking of scripture, matters. Yeah. How you say something affects what you are saying and the thrust and the force and the impact of the text and how the listener should hear and apply. Now, one of the things that you have become known for recently is uh, an article you wrote in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society a year or two ago, uh, uh, suggesting that we should kill the big idea. Now, just to be clear, Haddon Robinson wrote a book called Biblical Preaching. It's maybe, I'm thinking, the second best-selling preaching text behind Broadus, I think. And and has gone into three editions and probably the most widely used textbook across the world in evangelical seminaries. And in which he says, you know, that basically when you uh, build a sermon on a text that you come up with the big idea and you you preach, it's it's the thing that you— Take home. You— Drive home. Call it the take-home message. That's right. Use all your rhetorical skills to drive this big idea home. Everything else supports this big idea in your sermon. You say that's not the right way I, ha- I have a problem with that. Okay, tell me why. I have a problem with thinking that a text of several hundred words can be reduced losslessly into a big idea of a few or a dozen words, and that too shaped in a propositional form, if you're familiar with Haddon Robinson's language, that means a subject plus a complement. I don't think that a, any reduction of the text will work right. as a lossless expression of the force of the text. It takes all the words of the text to convey what the text is doing. If God wanted us to catch the big ideas, he should have just given us a bulleted, timeless a list, list of, of propositions. Absolutely. And uh, to go back to the Luke 14 example, for me to just say, Jesus says the banquet is his banquet. I mean, you're you're missing the beauty of it, the force of it, the artistry with which he, he does it, the the way that both Jesus and Luke reveal who exactly. he is and and point us to the eschaton. This is a fundamental use of language. If after the Second World War, Churchill had said, "We owe the Royal Air Force much." We'd have said, yeah, that's probably true, and yarned. Yeah. In the fields of human conflict, never have so many owed so much to so So few. few. That'll never be forgotten. That's right. There's something instinctively gut-punching about what he said. And that's true for, this is how language functions. This is is a fundamental precept of language. It's the way God created us uh, to appreciate nuance and language and i think we're hardwired for it because that's the most efficient way to deliver a maximal impact well uh so how do you tell me about how you craft a sermon like what goes into sermon preparation for you what's it look like if we're looking over your shoulder as you do it i like to think of sermons as having two halves 
the first half is the her- well, I don't know if it's halves precisely, but at least two parts to it. One is the hermeneutics. What is the text doing? And the other one is the rhetorical aspect. How do I now convey what I got from the text to an audience with a valid application? The grappling, for the most part, is for me on this side. What is the text doing? And it's, it's, it's really a wrestling with the text and never giving up until I catch what it's doing, which means studying the text in its original languages, reading as many commentaries and articles on the text that I can find and lay my hands on, and getting a sense of, okay, I think I know what the author is doing. At which point now I think, how, how do I best convey this to my audience, the thrust of the text, what I technically call the theology of the pericope. Pericope is a non-technical, in my opinion, definition of a small chunk of text that's used for preaching. So how do I convey the thrust or force, which I call the theology of the pericope, to my listeners? Because that is my primary goal as the curator of this masterpiece that the text is. I'm a midwife to this text. I want to convey the thrust and the force. Once they have gotten that, and then they're asked, they're convicted and convinced that God's pericope is making a call, a demand on their lives, they come up and say, now what shall we do? And then I, in my secondary pastoral responsibility, say, okay, this is what I think we ought to be doing. So that's kind of in brief. The tendency has been, since I use the phrase curate the master's piece, the tendency all along has been instead to create a masterpiece of a sermon, as if something that I create is is either equal to or higher than the text. So I remind myself I'm not there to create a master, masterpiece, but I'm there to curate as a docent, as a right. guide does in a museum, the master's piece. That's right. You want to get them engaged with the text. It's basically facilitating their interaction directly with the text. That's because right. why was the word of God written? for the people of God to read it. And I'm just a mediator facilitating things so that they can catch what they may not normally or otherwise catch. Right. I, I feel that if if my people hear me preach and they, if their response is, wow, I'm glad we have an expert as our pastor to tell us what this means, then I failed. I want them to say, oh, wow, I see that. He, he, he showed me how to see that. Exactly. I see that. And... It gets them into the text for themselves. They'll they never forget it. More. That's right. And I'm not merely explaining the meaning of the passage. I'm showing them how to interpret it themselves, how to understand and the word. Another way of looking at it is if you write a journal article, there's a lot of footnotes. That to me is the sermon. I'm just footnoting the main article. I'm not substituting for the main article. That's God's word. I'm just glossing it, if you, if you want to use uh-huh. a technique. I'm just pointing the hint. Did you see that? Did you see that? Just like if I were in the Louvre and right. were, were curating the uh, Mona Lisa, for instance, I might point out the fact that the, that good lady doesn't have any eyebrows. And I, she doesn't. And I have no idea what Da Vinci was doing with it. But, yeah. but I might point out those curious things so that people can catch, the gallery visitors can catch what the author's thrust is, the intent is. Now you've ri- written several commentaries. Yes, so in the pursuit of this crusade, what I have been doing is going pericope by pericope, chunk of text by chunk of text, catching the clues in the text so I can explicate, facilitate the understanding of the thrust or force or pericopal theology. So I go pericope by pericope in my commentaries, and thus far I've generated about four of them, one in Genesis, Judges, Mark, and Ephesians, currently working on one in the pastoral epistles. Uh, So, okay, 
four down, 62 to go. <laughs> this is a, two a year. No, wait, uh, one like, commentary one takes two, two years. years. So yeah. all I need is another 124 years. And you've written, uh, what, three books on preaching? Uh, four, including four. my dissertation, yes. Okay. Privilege of the Text, um, and A then Vision a for Preaching. And a pair of books, which is A, a Vision man- for Preaching and A Manual for Preaching. You know, I love your book, A Vision for Preaching. It's one of my big complaints about the whole academic pursuit of preaching. You know, if you buy a book on sewing, nobody begins by defining what sewing is. But if you buy a book on expository preaching, they're all going to start with their definition of exposition. Here's what an expository sermon is. And everybody has their own little take on, oh, it has to have this, has to have that, which uh, to me means anything that's outside of your definition is therefore not, not the preaching. thing you've defined, right? So if they say, well, the the structure of the sermon determines the stru- or the structure of the text determines the structure of the sermon. Okay, I, I would say that's generally true, but like in Proverbs, that's hard to do. There are places where I think it's 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 harder to do. And what about storying in a illiterate, uh, you know, a context uh, or culture? What I love about your book, A Vision for Preaching, is you don't say all of these things have to be involved in every sermon for it to be a sermon, but you say broadly, here's here's what I think preaching should accomplish. And I think a vision for preaching is better than saying here's the definition of preaching. Yeah, I see it as a goal to be attained, a journey to be traveled, yeah. something that we can shoot for rather than... Because it's impossible to, first of all, preach the perfect sermon and also even to assess, for instance, a couple of my criteria, it must be biblical. Well, how biblical should it be? Is it 50, 60, 70, 80, 90? And how biblical have I been in my preaching? Or how theological, or how communicational? It's difficult to grade each one. So it's almost impossible to grade a whole sermon as to how successful. But the, the goal is to keep moving onward in that direction. That's right. You, you did that very well. Uh, also, I just want to point out that you uh, you bat back up for somebody that's pretty significant. You, you get in the summers, you fill in for Chuck Swindoll at the church that he pastors. Is that right? Yes, that's true. Uh, how, is, how does it feel to fill Chuck Swindoll's pulpit? Well, let me give you another example of that. There was one time when he had the flu and he called me in to fill in for him. So here I am sitting in the front row. Nobody knows that Pastor Chuck is not there. <laughs> they're all thinking they're going to hear him. Uh-huh. Huh? And so the uh, executive pastor, worship leader, comes up and says, we need to be praying for Chuck since he's gotten the flu. He won't be here today. And, and Dr. Curvilla is substituting for him. You could hear, oh, from 5,000 people. <laughs> well, that's, that'll, that'll that's, 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 that's when you know you, what you're up against. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> that, that would be a challenge. You know, one of the things I love about you, Abe, uh, you are single, and I think you have an incredible biblical and godly vision of singleness. Tell us about that. You have four particular uh, things you say about your singleness. Explain. I call it ecclesiological, which is a long word to say churchly or church-related singleness. And I characterize it by four criteria. It's by choice, so it's not forced or determined by other outside factors. It's for life, so it's not single until something happens or turns up. It's by choice for life. It's unto Christ, which means 
it's not to make more money or to live the happy life or whatever else. It's to serve Christ to the best of my ability. And finally, it's within community, fully embedded in the body of Christ rather than hiding in a cave somewhere. That's absolutely the healthiest summation of Christian singleness I think I've ever heard. Thank you. Uh, and you, you, you do model that. So you say, you, 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 would you say God has called you to singleness? I would say yes. I have a, 1 Corinthians 7 implies there's a gift of uh-huh. celibacy and a gift for marriage. I, I think I have the gift of celibacy. And you're contented in your singleness? Very much so. Is there, would you say there's any possibility you will ever marry? When I first made the decision, I did leave the door a little open. I had two nephews that were kind of small, and my brother and sister-in-law had given me custody of them should something happen to them. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, if something happens to my brother and sister-in-law and I gain custody of those little kids, I will get married. But uh, now they're married themselves and they have their own children. So the door is closed primarily because otherwise, and I'm just speaking for myself personally, if you think that God might lead someone into your life and you left, leave that open, there are plenty of wonderful women. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe God's, maybe this one's God's choice. Maybe that one's God's. Uh, it's distracting. I, I cannot function. Even, yeah, even in the possibility. So I just shut the door. It's a short life anyway. Yeah. Well, uh, true to what Paul says in First Corinthians 7, you, you do focus on ministry. And uh, this is one reason why you're so productive. You write a lot, correct? That is, that's, that's all I do. And Outside of watch cricket and listen to Bach. And uh, you'll stay in your house for sometimes I'm, days I'm, writing? I'm happy. I'm content staying at home. Solitude is my thing. Uh, and do, do you, you feel totally fulfilled in your singleness? Very much so. Thank you. That's just that, a, that's a, been great. It's just a wonderful the statement of the sufficiency of Christ that Jesus is enough and you don't define uh, yourself by what anybody else does or not. You, you just find your contentment in him and in his calling on your life. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Yeah. Uh, my heavenly father will deny me no good thing. Absolutely. And uh, I believe that, and you, you live that. It's just an incredible uh, encouragement to me. I, I've, when I first heard you share that, you shared that once in a Ph.D. seminar, I think I had you come speak to. It so resonated with me. The next time I was on any kind of a text remotely near singleness and family, I, I used that, and I've shared it with a lot of people. I think more need to hear that, those four uh, those, those four different aspects of your singleness by choice for life under Christ in community. Uh, there's just a, a wonderful beauty in that. I commend you for it. And Thank I'm, you. I'm grateful to you for sharing it. Do you, do you t- speak much on singleness or is this just, there's an article on my website. That's part of a book chapter that I've contributed to, but no, I don't. I think my life has been taken up with the preaching issues and the hermeneutics that this is not, I've spoken at some single singles groups in churches, but I always warn the singles pastor or leader that the kind of singleness that I espouse is not what they want to hear about. Yeah, I would think They're that. more about single until. Uh-huh. I'm saying single for life. Uh, tell us about your website. Homiletics, 
with an X. With an X dot com. Uh, it's just a place to air my grievances and comment about things going on, put all my articles that I've published and uh, announce my books. And there's a free chapter download of uh, all the books I've written. You yeah. can check that out before you purchase them. One of my favorite features on that, you ask different uh, people how I preach. Th- that's exactly right. And uh, the good Dr. Herschel York has been featured on how I preach as well. So if you look up, look up that, you'll see him and a host of others who have answered a few set questions that I have given them. Uh, very, very fascinating to see how different people approach the preaching task. It really is, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, the uh, uh, so, how many hours a week do you work in medicine? About twelve, sometimes sixteen. You know, that's an amazing thing. So, you are a seminary professor, a preacher. You're writing all these books, and you still have a, a medical practice that you see patients. Now you know why I'm single. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just uh, it it makes me tired just listening to, <laughs> listen to all that you do. Uh, it, and you're a uh, pretty active guy yourself. Well, Dr. York. I, you know, I, I hear your schedule and I think, wow, that that guy's doing a lot. But uh, you're doing it really for the glory of the Lord in so many many ways. Uh, let me just ask you uh, a few questions about preaching in general. So, you one of the metaphors you use is that when we look at the text, it's like looking not through a glass in order to observe something on the other side, but looking at a stained glass, glass right? So, uh, like, uh, and and you talk about the way that this, the text shapes us into the image of Christ. Mm-hmm. Are there particular passages that you find it hard to preach, like imprecatory psalms or the, in the book of Joshua, slaughter of the folks at, at AI or anything like that that, you, you struggle with that methodology? I think prophecy might be a little harder because the actual events being prophesied may not necessarily be relevant to me as a 21st century non-Jewish uh-huh. Gentile Christian believer. So that makes it a little harder to figure out how, how is this going to work in my life. Um, uh-huh. It all stems around the hope that is being given in all prophecy, but that's too broad. Every prophetic pericope cannot just deal with hope but that's something i'm struggling with and hopefully my goal one of my goals is not to be working on this alone to uh-huh. uh, to corral and canvas as many people as i can to work on these projects and fill fill in the gaps that i'm unable to or will be unable to fill myself well i i, I look forward to anything you do man I, I tell you everything you every time you come out with something new i want to read it get it I love being with you. You're you're fun to be with, and and that, um, and that Brazilian restaurant we went to was outstanding. Yeah, it's, we, it's a lot of fun to be with Doctor York. I, let I, me tell you that. Uh, well, I try. I teach you how to eat in Portuguese, man. Uh, <laughs> hey, I like to end uh, every Pastor Well podcast with just a uh, what I call a twinkling of an eye round, just some quick questions, and you answer however you, you like. Okay, uh, what's your favorite city in the world? Oh, that's a tough one. Let's see. Uh, the most recent one that I went to was Barcelona. Loved it. Uh, okay. Uh, what secular author do you like to read or has influenced you? Several Jewish authors that may not necessarily be called secular, but they're not Christian. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, some of them we have talked about ourselves. Robert Alter. Robert Alters. Meyer Sternberg. Adele Berlin. Many of them interact with the text that is uh, do you ever insightful. Read, do you ever read fiction? 
Yes, I do. I like detective fiction. Sue okay. Grafton from A through W. She didn't finish X. All of her books are alphabetized. Andrea Camilleri, who's an Italian author, detective fiction as well. Really? Love those. Uh, what's the best class you ever took? You can look back and think of one class you took. And like that was, I loved that class. I think some of the preaching classes that I've taken at Dallas Seminary, primarily from Timothy Warren. Well, I'm glad to know it's not something like epidemiology or something <laughs> like that. Do you remember the first sermon you ever preached? It was horrible. I don't want to remember it. Do you know what the text was? Or do you just block it? At- I just block it. I think it was Hebrews <laughs> chapter 13. But It's no. traumatic, huh? Yeah, I, I, I have exactly that same feeling. I remember my first sermon. In fact, I have a tape of it somewhere. I, I do have the manuscript. And, oh, it's just it's just absolutely horrible. Uh, I shudder to think about it. The only good thing is that Jesus said, if you don't sing, you don't speak, the stones will cry out. If God can use a stone, he surely can use me. Amen. That's encouraging. You are a really sharp dresser. Do you have a favorite b- brand of clothing? or No. Whatever my sister-in-law gives me. Oh, I'm just kidding, but uh, <laughs> she does give me a perpetual supply of bow ties. So she does. Well, once you say you like it, you know she's gonna. That's it. What a nice sister. Yeah, no, she's great. Yeah. Cooks well too. And your favorite Bible translation? Probably my own. I try to work through it uh, on my own most of the time that I'm preaching. When you preach, you, I, you use your I, own? I compare with English translation that I have, and off the lot that I prefer either the Holman or the New American Standard, but I create my own. Well, anytime you're preaching, if I can hear you, I certainly want to. You are a blessing and a joy in my life. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for what you do for the kingdom, and thank you today for being on Pastor Well. It was a delight to be here, and I look forward to our time in Brazil together in a few months. We're going to do Brazil together. I I look forward to it as well. Thank you for tuning in to Pastor Well. I hope that you will subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, and we'll see you again next time on Pastor Well.